Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. morning. It's Valentine's Day, Wednesday, February 14th. The war in the Middle East is now 131 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research here at Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Welcome back to another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. Sorry, folks, but I've got no roses or chocolates for you today. I've just got news and analysis. The best I can offer is that I endeavored to deliver all of this with love. So please do keep tuning in to the FDD Morning Brief, and we'll keep cranking it out three times a week. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Dan Senor. Dan is a deep thinker on the Middle East. He's the co-author of the acclaimed book, Startup Nation, and his new co-authored book, The Genius of Israel. He's also host of the podcast called Call Me Back, and he just got back from Israel, and he'll be sharing some of his insights. But before we get to Dan, I want to talk about economic warfare. We all know that the Iran-backed Houthis have shut down traffic in the Red Sea. The Yemeni group is blocking ships heading to Israel. Egypt's economy is also getting hammered with Suez Canal traffic cut by roughly half. Europe is affected. So are Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. But Israel's economy is the target. Thankfully, the Israelis have found a way to truck in their goods from Dubai and Bahrain. But the headaches keep coming. Moody's recently downgraded Israel's ratings as a consequence of the war. And don't forget that wars are a drain on any economy. Fuel, weapons, ammo, keeping the reservists called up, all of that costs money. And so the Israeli economy, while it is still resilient, is taking its lumps. In a normal world, the West would wage an economic counteroffensive. We'd cut off Iranian banks from the SWIFT banking system. We'd block Iranian oil sales to China and Russia. We'd enforce existing sanctions, and then we'd pile on some more. But what's happening instead? The U.S., the U.K., and France are all imposing sanctions on, wait for it, Israeli settlers. I mean, I get it. Some settlers may have it coming. But meanwhile, Iran is waging war on yet another front without a commensurate U.S. response. Has the U.S. lost sight of the big picture? It sure looks like it. I mean, the White House began this war with moral clarity. It now looks a lot like moral equivalence. Okay, before we move on to our regularly scheduled program, there is some breaking news on the Lebanese border. Hezbollah attacked Israel this morning, killing one and injuring eight, maybe more. The IDF has responded with a series of strikes across Lebanon, and the team here at FTD is looking into reports that Hezbollah utilized precision guided munitions or PGMs. This would be a serious escalation if the facts bear out. We're looking into it. Now for your headlines. Headline one, uh, Israeli authorities arrested an, an Israeli Arab citizen for sending money to Hamas yesterday. Here's what we know. The suspect is believed to have sent money to an operative in Turkey that runs a front which funnels money onward to Hamas. For those who need a refresher, there is a large Hamas headquarters in Istanbul that operates with full coordination from the Turkish government. And speaking of Turkey, reports yesterday indicate that another flotilla may be on its way to Israel. You, you may remember that in 2010, the Turks tried to send one. That ended in clashes with Israeli naval commandos on the high seas. The same radical IHH group beyond, behind that debacle was the host of yesterday's press conference. This is just what we need, right? Oh, and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan just announced that he'll be visiting Egypt for the first time in 11 years 
I'll be watching that one closely. I tend to think this is related to the looming Rafa offensive. Headline two, speaking of Egypt, hostage talks in Cairo broke off yesterday without a deal. The key sticking point? It's apparently the number of Hamas prisoners that the terror group wants in return for each hostage. Apparently, that's more than Israel is willing to give up, whatever that number is. And apparently, there's been some progress, even without arriving at an agreement. But then came this bonkers headline. Israeli journalist and one-time morning brief guest Barack Ravid reported that President Biden actually weighed in on these negotiations. And the president said that Israel needed to give up more convicted terrorists to get back hostages held by violent terrorist groups designated here in the United States. That's incredible. I mean, maybe just sit this one out, Mr. President. And headline three, upon further review... The New York Times has determined that Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City was, in fact, used by Hamas as a human shield for its leaders and fighters and as a storage area for its weapons. Better late than never, I suppose. But you'll recall that the Israelis were getting hammered for their supposed human rights abuses. And the New York Times played a role in that pylon. I don't expect an apology anytime soon. But there may be an upside here to the extent that anyone reads anymore. And to the extent that anyone remembers these things, there may be other hospital battles brewing, not in Gaza, I'm talking about in Lebanon. Should Israel have to head north, we know that Hezbollah engages in the same tactics, the war crimes, as their Hamas brethren. There are at least two hospitals that I've been tracking that could be serving as headquarters for the Lebanese terrorist group. Let's hope we don't need to hear about that in the news for a while. It's now my pleasure to introduce Dan Senor. I actually first met Dan in Baghdad when he was working for the Coalitional Provisional Authority. I was working for a different think tank at the time, and Dan gave us a briefing. I'm not sure he'd remember it, but I do. Dan is the co-author of the blockbuster book, Startup Nation. He has a new book out now called The Genius of Israel, and he's also host of the smart podcast called Call Me Back. Welcome, Dan. John, good to be with you. Uh... Longtime fan, first time or longtime listener, first time guest. Uh, it's a, it's an honor and a pleasure. Pleasure's mine. Well, let me dive in here with you and, and just I want to ask you about Call Me Back because your podcast has taken off during this war. What do you think accounts for this? It's not just the headlines, right? There's a real hunger out there. And I'll just note personally that this seems like a moment for a wider audience for all the things that you and I track. I certainly see it here on the morning brief. So how, how do you assess what's going on, on out there in, 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 in podcast land? I um, So I didn't intend when, when we completely pivoted post-October 7th to a, to a you know, Israel-only uh, content uh, engine, I didn't anticipate the, um, the demand for it. It was just, it was almost like cathartic. It was my way of kind of dealing with the moment. So I started checking in with friends of mine in Israel, like Aviv Retigur, to see how they were doing. This was on October 7th, October 8th. And I was so moved by what they were saying, both emotionally, the sort of rawness of the moment, and also their analysis. And so I said, let's record the conversation. And I posted it, and it went viral. And what we try to do is deal with big, meaty topics. Like we, you know, you and I did a conversation early on about the history of Hamas and Gaza, I, I, I've done a long episode on the history of the two-state solution, all the times it's been tried. Why has it always failed? The history of UNRWA. Uh, I've had Enat Wilfon, who you know, who we just had on to do a long episode on what was going on in the attempts by leaders in the Yeshuv in pre-state Israel or pre-state Palestine to create a Jewish, to create a Palestinian state. 
alongside a Jewish state in the 1930s and 1940s. An episode like that with a knot that I just recorded last week in Tel Aviv with her has, you know, gotten tens of thousands of downloads. So I think that the sort of meatier the content, the more dense the content um, that deals with very difficult issues that many people haven't focused on before. People like you and me have been thinking about these issues for a while. A lot of people have not paid attention. The number of people have reached out to me and said, I had no idea what UNRWA was, let alone that I should be so horrified by what they've been doing. And so I just think this has been a wake-up call, not just about what happened on October 7th, but a sense that there's a lot of people who want to get educated about the kind of core issues, the core historical issues that shaped an environment that led to October 7th. Agreed. Well, let me ask you, you're just in Israel and you met with members of the war cabinet and their advisors and others. What were your impressions about how the top brass is viewing the war now? Four months in, where are we? Uh, I'd say a few things. One, I was struck by there was less division among members of the war cabinet and, and their advisors than I had expected. You know, you read the press and you hear that each other's throats. It may very well be that they don't like each other personally and they and they view each other as political competitors. But on the substance, there was a sense that no, not not a single one. I, I, I met with every one of them or their advisors with the exception of one. So but, but let's say the general sense among the majority of them was Hamas must be defeated full stop. There's no world in which Israel can stop short of the eradication of Hamas's leadership, its military infrastructure, and its fighters. And that means Rafa. That means going all the way. And that to stop short of that and leave even a fraction of Hamas in power or a fraction of Hamas to be able to wave a flag after this and say, see, we survived, would mean that Israel would be reduced to a fraction of itself in the region and globally in terms of its geopolitical power, its economic power, um, and just, uh, you know, the deterrent power. So, so, and they all believe that. Now there, there's quibbles between some of the members of the war cabinet about what actually should be in power af in Gaza after, uh, after, after the war. I think Gantz is more, you know, sympathetic to the idea of there being some kind of, you know, Palestinian strongman that Israel can deal with. And people like Netanyahu and Dermer and Gallant have a different view but just a general sense that Hamas has to go, that keeping pressure on Hamas is probably the best way, not that there's any great way, but it's probably the best way to make progress on the hostages. And um, and, the, and a general sense that America is going to give Israel a hard time from time to time, like we've seen over the last seven days, and as you referred to in your, in your opening commentary, but they're not going to stop Israel. They're not going to shut down the munitions. They're going to do things that are going to frustrate Israel. And rhetorically, the, the, some of these things they said over the last week were really outrageous. But at the end of the day, they're not standing in the way. They'll say, we don't want Israel to do in Rafah what the way it fought in the north. OK, but they're not saying you can't go to Rafah under any circumstances. So uh, there's a hard headedness, a sense that the U.S. isn't going to stand in the way on the things that matter. And um, and again, they, they may quibble a little bit about what exists post post Hamas, but the idea of eliminating Hamas, there's no I, I found no daylight between them. Well, that's good news. Um, I, I think, you know, we do hear a lot about the quibbling and the squabbling between uh, the, the various uh, uh, brass here and uh, certainly in the war cabinet. But let me just ask you just to drill down a little bit on Bibi and Dermer and some of the other folks that you've talked to. 
Um, and I mean, we're hearing a lot about day after scenarios right now, right? That Israel needs to come up with a plan and it needs to be something that's solid, that the United States and, you know, the Europeans and maybe the Egyptians and the Jordanians, I mean, everybody is asking for a plan. Is there one? Um, I mean, from my, what I picked up on my trip a month ago was, you know, there were a number of plans and that maybe there isn't one that we can focus in on. Do you think by here we are on February 14th, that's actually six weeks after I was there where they had multiple choices. Have they drilled down and found one or is that still I, I, part of a discussion? I, I think they're still deliberating. I think there's high sensitivity about. So on the one hand, the U.S., the administration, Biden administration is saying to the war cabinet, where's your plan? Where's your plan? Where's your plan? And they have two reactions. We're looking at a bunch of options, but uh, one, it's hard to really think seriously about a plan before this thing ends because we don't know what it looks like when it ends. So a plan will be will be uh, predicated upon the outcome, and we're we're still trying to shape the outcome. A, B, there is a real concern, and I heard this from several members of the war cabinet, that any plan that seems to be authored by Israel will be dead on arrival. In other words, it may be the administration, the Biden administration wants Israel to have a plan, but the Israelis are very sensitive to a plan looking like it's authored by the Arab world as discrediting the plan the moment it is announced in the Arab world. So they believe that any plan has to be actually conceived largely in the Arab world. It has to be backed by the United States. And Israel has to convey that it can live with it. But the idea that the plan has to be released by Israel and presented to the world and then get the Arab world's response, they, they just think it it'll it'll it's like we'll be taking steps backwards, not forwards. Let me ask you something. I mean, you you spent some time in Iraq, as as I mentioned. This idea of a um a neat plan that is put in place well before victory is achieved. Does this give the enemy an opportunity to scuttle the plans of Israel, the United States, and the rest of the Arab world? I mean, the moment you say, I'm building a democracy, that's the moment that they start trying to destroy the infrastructure that you're trying to create. Is, are, are, you know, do you think that uh, Israel and the United States and others are tipping their hand right now and that it's all yeah. too soon? Do you get that sense? And and it allows, if you start uh, releasing and, and, and um, you know, uh, telegraphing the contours of the plan it allows bad actors to figure out how they can insinuate themselves in what is the infrastructure of that plan right so you know hamas 2.0 may decide that well hamas could never make it in some sort of democratic process that we that israel may be envisioning for gaza but if we come up with a 2.0 a reformed version of hamas and many of the actors that were you know major players in hamas can reintroduce themselves uh, as uh, or redefine themselves in another context, suddenly they can become palatable uh, and, and acceptable. So I, I think, yes, broadcasting too much also has the added disadvantage of allowing bad actors to think about how, I mean, I, by the way, John, I feel that way about so many of these issues. This whole idea of, you know, that Israel is, has got, a, the administration is pressuring Israel to move all these civilians to to northern Gaza. You know, easier said than done. The moment I think bad actors, Hamas actors in 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 Rafa, hear that that's the plan, and Israel's coming up with the plan, they can start figuring out how to join those civilian convoys that will be going in the north and sneak in and insert themselves. And so, 
any information we are broadcasting, I mean, this is the challenge of the way Israel's had to fight this war, is they're constantly being pr pressured to broadcast everything they do. Now, some of it they're quite used to doing, as you know, and you've you know, written quite a bit about, which is Israel goes to great lengths to alert civilians uh, in, its, in the areas where it's fighting wars to try to move civilians out of the way, particularly in population-dense places like parts of Gaza. The downside is every time you do that projection, every time you do that telegraphing, People, bad actors know how to manipulate their, you know, those situations. John Kirby, of all people, the, you know, the National Security Council spokesman has said this. He said from the White House podium, I know of, he says, I'm quote or, you know, paraphrasing. He says, I know of no modern military, including our own, including the United States, that would ever go to the lengths that Israel does to telegraph its next moves. And I think that applies to how Israel fights its wars, how it moves civilians and what kind of political process in governing structure, it's imagining for a post-war period. Yeah, unbelievable the amount of stress I think the Israelis are forced to endure here. Well, the war they didn't start, uh, that they didn't want in the first place, and now they're being held to standards that I just, uh, I mean, it, it's remarkable. Let me uh, let me pivot for a minute. I want to ask you just one more question about your recent trip. Um, the tech sector, I can only imagine you spoke to these folks um, as the author of Startup Nation, someone that is involved intimately with the uh, with, with Israel's sort of crown jewel with its economy. We talked about the economic war that is being waged against Israel. And then there's what Israel's doing to try to get back in the game after a few months pause. How is that going? Is Are things falling back into place in the high tech world? So, look, Israel uh, took a hit from the hit that the global tech sector uh, suffered in 2023. And so Israel was not immune to it. Then you add on to it the internal division over judicial reform and then obviously the the October 7th massacre, which the real setback for October 7th that's unique to Israel uh, is the number of uh employees and specifically senior executives from Israel's tech sector that were called up to reserve reserve duty. Like I have, I know of startups in Israel where, you know, I, I'm thinking of one in particular, I won't mention the name of the company, but the CEO is in Sayeret Maktal, was called up, the CEO and the founder of the company, and 30% of their leadership was called up. And um, that's quite common. I, most companies I know, anywhere from 10% 10 to 30% of their employees were called up for several months. And in the long run, I think it's in the long run, I think Israel's tech sector will be fine. And ironically, when there have been major geopolitical or or warlike or terrorist disruptions, you've seen the Israeli tech sector bounce back big time in the years and the cycles that follow, in part because, you know, these Israeli tech executives are quite resilient. They're quite they know what it's like to deal with uncertainty, to have to deal with by day, you know, fighting a war in Gaza by night, closing venture deals and doing business development and marketing. They literally like are the reservists. They bounce back and forth. And I just think there's a um, a level of education and grit development and, and resourcefulness uh, and interdisciplinary skills that Israeli tech entrepreneurs have because of exactly what we're describing that none of their peers around the world have. So in the long run, I think they'll be great. Uh, in the short term, though, you know, there are a lot of multinationals. There are about over 400 multinationals, 450 multinationals that have built major operations in Israel over the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, they're saying, OK, we get that a lot of the people from our operation have had to go fight in Gaza. They've been gone for three or four months. We need them back. 
And fortunately, most of them have stuck it out. Most of these multinationals, they're the ones I'm worried about that they're not they're not getting you know jittery they're not they're not shutting down operations they're not raising questions about the durability of their israeli operations but that said i do think israel bringing back the reservists as you're seeing right now in large numbers that was a the tech economy was a big factor in that decision by the government because they needed to get these employees back working back to the economy so the multinationals are not concerned my bigger concern is this moody's report that you know reduced uh, uh, Israel's rating from from A one to A two, and the and the actual outlook by Moody's was quite negative. That we've never seen before uh, in Israel's previous wars. We didn't see it. We didn't see it during the pandemic. Uh, we didn't see it during the Second Intifada. Uh, so this this is new. And um, if you read through the report, the concerns that they're expressing are much bigger than just the war of the moment. But it's 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 a much bigger concern about Israel's political stability, political, you know, outlook, its geopolitical position in the region. And so I think the Israeli government is going to have to do a lot of work in reassuring these different, you know, economic monitors, metrics makers, credit agencies in the next few months. It's it's I'm much more worried about that than I am about the tech sector. I think the tech sector will ultimately be fine. Interesting stuff. Let's uh, hope for a little political stability, maybe a wrap up of the war. Thank you, Dan Sainor, for right. taking some time out, joining us today on the FTD Morning Brief. Great. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Okay, here's what FTD's tracking today. My colleagues from FTD's nonproliferation program are digging into an interview by a former senior Iranian official indicating that Iran maintains an active nuclear weapons program. This flies in the face of what the intelligence community has reported to Congress. That's nothing new, of course. The intelligence community has face-planted repeatedly on nuclear assessments. We obviously need to learn more, but either way, a change in Iran's policy is desperately needed. Uh, senior director of FTD's Center on Economic and Financial Power, Elaine Dazansky, signed on to an expert letter addressed to the letters of the House Financial Services Committee calling to provide more resources to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, FinCEN. FinCEN is the group within Treasury tasked with safeguarding our economy from money laundering, terrorist financing, and other financial crimes to function properly as America's financial intelligence unit. It obviously needs to be fully funded. Responding to recent belligerence out of Pyongyang, FTD's Anthony Ruggiero has a new piece assessing the Biden administration's North Korea policy. To date, the policy has targeted North Korean government representatives without addressing the expansive network of third-party sanctions evaders. Anthony argues that U.S. policy needs to change, like sanctions against North Korea's cyber activities, like interdicting vessels carrying prohibited coal and petroleum, and cutting off Korean commerce and financing in China. One last thing, FTD has a double feature up on Capitol Hill tomorrow. FTD China Program Director Craig Singleton is testifying before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on securing communications networks from foreign influence. And Anthony Ruggiero will be testifying before the House Foreign Affairs Committee on how to end global dependence on Vladimir Putin's nuclear energy sector. He's been out front, Anthony has, calling for the United States to stop dealing with Ross Adam a key revenue-earning arm of the Russian state. That's it for today. 
Read our expert analysis on our website, ftd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at ftd.org slash invest. And tune in on Friday for another episode of the FTD Morning Brief. My guest will be Gilad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. You remember he was the one who held up Yaya Sinwar's cell phone number at the UN. He'll give us the latest from Turtle Bay. As always, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FDD.